we stand in the presence of God's Word. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I've said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. No one has greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You did not choose me, I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that the Father will give you whatever you ask him in my name. I'm giving you these commands so that you may love one another. This is the word of the Lord. You know that every August I'm writing sermon titles. I'm looking up text appropriate for every Sunday in the liturgical year, beginning with Advent, which starts right after Thanksgiving every year. I know that Dr. Pensera needs about three months to get anthems all lined up and that long to learn, get ready to perform an anthem on a Sunday morning. So the goal is every year by August 31, text and titles for 52 Sundays. So it was last August that I was working on sermon titles, read this text, and remembered that the Saturday night before, one of the two of the professional football teams had already already had an exhibition game. And in that game, a big defensive tackle, 350 pounds, had separated the quarterback from the football, then had recovered it, and had run off the field. The television camera zoomed in on him. He looked right into the lens and said, I'm on the Hi, Mom. They don't ever say, Hi, Dad. Ever. Six weeks from now will be Father's Day. And the few cards that get sent will say, My father loves golf. Sitting in his recliner, sound asleep. You know. But not with mothers. We don't make jokes about mothers on Mother's Day. The Wall Street Journal said this week that there are 83 million mothers in the United States right now. They will receive 140 million cards this weekend. But that's just the beginning, of course. Chocolates, flowers, Sunday lunch. The Wall Street Journal predicted that we Americans will spend on our mothers this weekend $14.6 billion. Mothers are special to us. Very special. $14.6 billion. Today, this lection is appropriate for the sixth Sunday of Eastertide, but I think it works well for Mother's Day and the Festival of the Christian Home as well. Let's take a look. Jesus said, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. But think about how the father loved him. He didn't always say yes to him. You remember that Thursday night after Jesus had celebrated Passover with his disciples in an upper room in Jerusalem? They had sung a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. It's not far outside the walls of the ancient city of Jerusalem. Since the coming of the Muslims to the city of Jerusalem, the east gates have been sealed up, but... In Jesus' time, the east gates were open. One could walk out the east gates down 100 yards, 150 maybe, to a little brook, beautiful little Kidron Valley. You can cross over a bridge there, and you're ascending then, a little hill 
filled with olive trees. That same olive grove was there 2,000 years ago when Jesus took his disciples there where it was quiet out of all the masses who had come to celebrate Passover who would say to them, pray, pray and watch. They went to sleep, you remember. He went a little farther and prayed so desperately that sweat drops like blood dripped from his forehead. And he said, Oh God, my Father, not this cup, not this cup. And God said, Yes, this cup. Yes, this is the reason you've come for these events tomorrow, Saturday, Sunday. This is the reason I sent you. So when God loved him, he didn't always make things terribly easy for him. Sometimes things were really difficult for him. Yesterday was my mother's birthday. She would have been 90 yesterday. She got to within three months of that 90th birthday. She died February 5th. Years ago, when I saw that I was never going to live in my hometown again, and I had been in any number of nursing homes through the years, had seen cards on nightstands, had admired the card only to have a person say, that was sent to me on my 50th birthday, and she was now 80. I resolved that I would not do that to my mother or father. I would write to them every week. Every week I wrote to them, and my mother would always answer my letter. I would write on Friday afternoon. She probably had it Monday. I would get an answer from her about Wednesday, and I would write again on Friday afternoon. And if you write to somebody every week for many, many years, they share lots of things with you. I've told you my mother grew up very poor. She was from a large family. They were sharecroppers. They lived on the edge of someone else's farm. They had to give the landowner 50% of everything they produced. My mother grew up in a family that was honest, hardworking, but not church people. My mother had never been to church until she married my father. He had grown up in a little Methodist church founded by his grandfather just on the outskirts of Carthage, Texas, but he didn't go very much anymore either. Finally, I was born two years later. My father was drafted into World War II near the end of the war. My mother realized how desperately she needed help, help that no person could give her. With a husband fighting in Patton's Third Army in Germany, she went to the nearest little church she could find. But my mother grew. She grew a great deal. I'll be forever grateful for United Methodist Women because my mother had grown up being taught that women are to anticipate men's every wish. She grew up in an old house that never had running water. It never had electricity. But if her father or one of her brothers should say, I'm thirsty, she was expected to jump up and run to the well and draw a fresh, cool bucket of water and bring that man a drink. She did the same for my father for years. Then United Methodist women kept teaching her, you are a person of worth, of equal worth. You weren't sent here to wait on a man all your life. You get to be a person, a child of God, equal, 
equal child of God. And she grew. She gained confidence. She was in PTA. She became president of PTA. She became president of the city council PTA. Well, town council maybe. Carthage is not a very big place. But one year, she was asked to give the devotional at Church Women United. And someone from the local newspaper staff heard her give that testimonial and said, Would you write that for us for the newspaper? She agreed to do that. And so many people wrote in, called in, that they said, Would you write another one of those for us? And she wrote a weekly column for her hometown paper for more than 25 years. But the columnist she liked was Irma Bombeck. She loved Irma. She thought Irma got it right. But Irma got it right. And one of the columns she clipped out from Irma Bombeck and mailed to me was this one. I think it illustrates this first point. We all know that being a mom is the hardest, most rewarding job on the face of the earth. You don't love me. How many times have your kids laid that one on you? Well, someday, when my kids are old enough to understand, I'm going to tell them I loved you enough to bug you about where you were going, with whom, and what time you would get home. I loved you enough to insist you buy a bike with your own money, which we could afford, and you couldn't. I loved you enough to be silent and let you discover that your hand-picked friend was a creep. I loved you enough to stand over you for two hours while you cleaned your bedroom, a job I could have done myself in 15 minutes. I loved you enough to let you see anger, disappointment, and tears in my eyes. I loved you enough not to make excuses for your lack of respect or your bad manners. I loved you enough to ignore what every other mother does, even when I didn't think every mother was, nor did I think them right if they were. I loved you enough to let you stumble, fall, and fail. I loved you enough to let you assume responsibility for your own actions. I loved you enough to shove you off my lap, let go of your hand, so you could learn to stand alone. I loved you enough to accept you for what you are, not always what I wanted you to be. But most of all, I loved you enough to say no when you hated me for it. That was the hardest part of all. Number two. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down one's life for another. And Jesus, of course, was willing to lay down his life, if that's what God asked of him. But in this passage today, he's also asking us to lay down our lives for each other. Last Sunday at 6 o'clock, we had a wonderful vesper. Dr. Bill Crowell led us... Debbie Peterson and, and our confirmands uh, had vitally important parts. Dr. Pensera had put together wonderful musical groups for us, uh, instrumentalists and vocalists. It was really a special, unusually good Vesper. In Dr. Kroll's sermon, one of the persons he quoted was St. Thomas Aquinas. St. Thomas Aquinas, any of you with Roman Catholic backgrounds will remember well, after the Roman Empire had fallen and Europe had been plunged into the Dark Ages, 
ignorance and superstition had really crept into the Christian faith in the West. And St. Thomas Aquinas rediscovered the great philosophers of ancient Greece, Plato, Socrates, and Aristotle, and brought reason back into the faith. The faith ought not be unreasonable, and certainly it should not be ignorant and superstitious, but be informed and rational and sane. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church loved him, and, and we Protestants uh, know about him, have come to love him as well. He had a word all those centuries ago for this business of loving each other and laying down our lives for each other. He called it benevolentia, benevolentia. It means literally to wish the good for another. To wish the good for another. Dr. Tankersley, in his prayer, wonderfully was helping us understand that this is not a feeling, this is a commandment, this is a decision that we make, that we will put ourselves out for the well-being of another. In March, I really enjoyed March Madness again. I loved the basketball tournament. It was lots of fun. But worked out that April was going to be a good time for Gail and me to take our vacation this year. And so we flew out just hours before the finals were played. And uh, once we got to Europe, uh, there's no newspaper around that I could read. And only on CNN Europe did we finally hear a couple of days later, Duke had won by one point. But when we got back, and at nighttime I was reading through all of our newspapers that had accumulated, here was a story about one of the Butler players. That player's name was Sean Van Zant. Four years before, Sean Van Zant was in high school, a basketball player. His mother had died, his father was in prison, and his older brother was awaiting trial on a very serious charge. The high school basketball coach could see that Sean, at this point, was still making good decisions. And that he was closer to one of the other kids than he was to the others on the team. So the co coach called the parents, the family name is Lytton, and said, we have a player on the team, you've seen him play. Sean's mother has died. His father's in prison. His older brother's awaiting trial on a very serious charge. So far, Sean is making good decisions. But I'm afraid for him. If he doesn't have some close care and supervision, I'm afraid for him. Is there any chance you could take this young man into your home? He didn't know that Mrs. Lytton was herself abandoned when she was six years old. That her mother walked out of her life and she had never seen or heard from her mother since. But she had resolved that she was going to be a different kind of mother, a better mother, and had married and in it had three sons. With her three sons, she took in Sean Van Zandt as well. She was battling cancer. The high school coach didn't know that. Even so, she took Sean into their home. Four years later, he's almost completed a degree from Butler University. He was playing in a national championship basketball game. Basketball was his ticket 
to a good education and all kinds of possibilities for the future. But the unsung hero was Mrs. Lytton, who took that kid in and gave him the best she had the last four years. Are you willing to lay down your life for someone else? Jesus said that's as good as it gets to lay down one's life for someone else's well-being. Number three, he said, I've said these things to you so that my joy may be in you. My joy may be in you. Whenever national organizations, international organizations, take polls among the peoples of the world about how happy they are, the United States is usually right down near the bottom. We usually report the fewest number of people, the smallest percentage of our population who say they're happy. Those who are always right up at the top seem to be those countries where the average income is a dollar a day. We have Methodist preachers in Africa who served the church for 40 years. And we shake their hand and hug their neck and say goodbye when they retire. So we've been trying desperately to raise enough funds that we can pay them $30 a month for the rest of their lives, it would be as much as they ever made as a Methodist preacher. And yet, when they're asked, are you happy? Yes. Yes. Do you see the disparity here? Last November, I cut out a column from the Wall Street Journal. It was called, No, Virginia, Christmas is not here yet. That drew my attention. We all know about that famous column of 80 years ago. Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. So I read the article to see what Eric Felton was trying to say. And he was saying to his child, it's only November the 13th, and already people are doing Christmas. He said the last big retail weekend is Halloween, and then retailers shift their emphasis to Christmas. And one thing gets scrunched up and left out, he said, and that's Thanksgiving. Is there any wonder, he said, that we're more likely to call it Turkey Day than Thanksgiving? Because, in fact, he said, most Americans in all polls report they're not very happy and they're not very thankful. You see, the two are bound up together. People who feel grateful tend to be happy. People who feel entitled and always focus on somebody who has more or better tend to be unhappy. You get to make a decision about that, you see. Eric Felton said in his column, you see, Thanksgiving used to come after the fall harvest. At the end of harvest, when people could see that they had enough for winter. Yesterday morning, Gail and I were out at one of the Jinks ballparks at 10 a.m. to see our Josh play baseball. Um, 
it was cold yesterday morning. Uh, we'd taken blankets and jackets, and we were scrunched up there a little before 10 o'clock in the morning getting ready for this baseball game when a fellow sat down beside me on the bleachers. I'd never seen him in my life. He'd never seen me either. He had no idea who I was, nor did I have any idea who he was. But he was one of those fellows, within three minutes, he was telling me all about himself. He doesn't live in Tulsa. He lives just south of Fayetteville, Arkansas. He had gotten up early enough yesterday morning to get all the way to Tulsa to see his grandson play ball. They were staying over today for Mother's Day. But he looked at me, we were about the same age, and he said, Boy, these kids today have a little bit of everything, don't they? I said, They do. Well, he said, You know, we got in the car this morning, and in just a minute, warm air was blowing on us. In July and August, we'll have air conditioning. I grew up, he said, milking cows before daylight every morning. Brown Swiss cows we milked every day before sunrise and every night before we went to bed. We didn't have running water. We didn't have electricity. We milked cows. And it'd be so cold in the winter and so hot when you had to put your forehead up against the belly of an old cow to milk her in the summertime. These kids today have just about everything, don't they? All four of my grandparents were farmers. I remember what fall was like when I was a child. They always had at least one hog. Since pork spoils very quickly in warm weather, they didn't have electricity when I was a little boy. They waited till the first really cold day in the fall to have hog killing. It string that huge animal up by the hind feet in a tree, and every part of that hog became a part of the diet. I remember the rendering out of the lard and the crackling bread. I remember my grandfather Hightower teaching me to poke my finger and then a little bit of cornbread into the backbone of this old hog when it had been properly roasted to get that rich marrow out and how wonderful that tasted. I remember helping them dig sweet potatoes for the winter. I remember the little smokehouse, they called it, behind the house, where they would hang up the hams of this hog and smoke them until they would not spoil during the winter time. How onions were suspended from the ceiling of this little house, and how uh, potatoes, both Irish potatoes and sweet potatoes, were buried there in this little house to last all through the winter. On the shelves inside, you could see these masonite jars filled with snap beans, peas of different kinds, and corn. Yeah, there was enough for the winter, the whole winter. Today, we go to a supermarket and an apple's getting ripe somewhere in the world. An orange is getting ripe somewhere in the world. Banana's getting ripe every three or four days when you take them home. And so, we feel entitled. We don't feel grateful and we have no joy. No joy. This is the day the Lord has made. Eric Felton said, Go ahead, eat another piece of sweet potato pie, but at least be grateful. Number four. I 
appointed you, Jesus said. After I chose you, you didn't choose me. I chose you. I appointed you to bear fruit that would last. Shortly after my mother died three months ago, I got uh, envelope in the mail from one of my cousins. And inside was a picture of me in the third grade. And she said, I'm sure you've got this picture somewhere. But she had been going through her mother's things, my mother's sister, who had died about three or four years ago. So that was finally going through some of my mother's things. And here was this picture of you. I thought you might like to have it, particularly since your mom has died. I turned the little picture over, and there my mother had written to her favorite sister, I cry, she said, when I see school pictures because they're growing up. And I know that's what they're supposed to do. But it reminds me how responsible I am for whether they're doing well or not. And I want so desperately that all three of mine will make a lasting difference for good, that my three will make a lasting difference for good. She sent me another Irma Bombay call. When the good Lord was creating mothers, he was into his sixth day when the angel said, you're doing a lot of fiddling around on this one. And the Lord said, have you read the specifications on this order? She has to be completely washable, but not plastic, have 180 movable parts, all replaceable, run on black coffee and leftovers, have a lap that disappears when she stands up, a kiss that can cure anything from a broken leg to a disappointed love, and six pairs of hands. The angel shook her head and said, six pairs of hands? No way. Oh, it's not the hands that are causing me the problem, said the Lord, it's the three pairs of eyes. She needs one pair that sees through closed doors when she asks, what are you kids doing in there, when she already knows, and around here in the back of her head that sees what she shouldn't, but what she needs to know. And of course the ones out there in front, so she can look at a child when he goofs and say, I understand, I'll love you anyway, without so much as uttering a word. Lord, said the angel, touching his sleeve gently, Come on to bed tomorrow. I can't, said the Lord. I'm so close to creating something so close to myself. Already I have one that can heal herself when she is sick, can feed a family of six on one pound of hamburger, can get a nine-year-old to stand under a shower. And the angel circled the model of a mother very softly and slowly. She's too soft, too soft, the angel said. But tough, the Lord said, you cannot imagine what she can endure. Can it think? Oh, not only think, it can reason and compromise, said the Creator. About that time the angel bent over and ran a finger across the cheek. There's a leak, she said. Oh, it's not a leak, said the Lord, it's a tear. What's it for? Well, it's for joy, sadness, disappointment, pain, loneliness, and pride. You are a genius, said the angel. The Lord looked rather somber. I didn't put it there, he said. 